0: Episode number thirty-four of the SUAS News podcast series, where we interview SMEs from the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan. Let's say a big hello, as always, to our co-host, Gene Robinson. Hello out there, and how are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing good, Gene. Uh, everything's good here in sunny California. Um, you know, can't complain. And I could, but no one would listen anyway. Anyway, this week's episode, number 34, Global UAS Initiatives. We're going to cover a lot of history and information about the current state of the global airspace um, integration effort. Uh, But before we bring our guest on, which is Mr. Doug Davis, I want to uh, ask Gene, as as usual, uh, anything catch your eye this week in the news, Gene?
1: Oh, I, I thought it was very interesting with uh, the fiscal curve that we ran into and tripped over that uh there were still quite a few, quite a few uh contracts led or uh the Pentagon actually let uh two hundred and forty eight million to the, the big five out there of, you know, Lockheed Martin, air environment and a few chosen others. I thought that was pretty interesting. And, yeah it uh, it seems to show that uh there there's still going to be money for the small unmanned aircraft industry and uh we're, it's just not going to go away.
0: I would concur with that. I don't I think that uh you know unmanned is the future here to stay. Um you know, and we're going to spend money on those projects. So, you know, that was a that was an interesting story. I agree with that. There's some other stuff coming up uh or, or it's on the web page that's uh, pretty interesting, it's worth checking out. Um but I think what we'll do now is we're gonna bring on uh, this week's guest. He's a real heavy hitter when it comes to airspace integration, Mr. Doug Davis.
2: Hi guys, thanks for having me
0: on. Hey Doug, thanks for coming on. Uh we got a lot of stuff to cover and so let's let's get let's get rolling here. I'm gonna give a little background. I mean, uh we I know you for a while now, Doug, me and Gene. And we actually met when you were the head of the Unmanned Aircraft Program Office over there for the uh, FAA, and we've known you for a while now. But I was wondering, Doug, if you could give the listeners kind of an overview of your professional career, uh, where you're at now, and, you know, (laughs) I guess, you know, a a cliff notes of how you got there.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I'd be happy to, Pat. So I started my aviation career in 1984 when I became an air traffic controller for the FAA. Uh, I stayed in the air traffic uh, field environment for about 10, 12 years or so before going to headquarters um, in uh, 97, um, where I, uh, at least for the first time, where I got into satellite navigation as an air traffic requirements lead and uh, moved through some of the uh, upper echelons there, became an airspace manager. Uh, And then on 9-11, I was the uh, technical advisor to the associate administrator for air traffic at the time, whenever 9-11 happened. Um, And then about two weeks later, I found myself in Colorado Springs as the FAA representative of the NORAD, where I spent about three years there rewriting the airspace shutdown plans and emergency procedures, those kinds of things for the airspace system, and then moved back to D.C. Thought I needed more pain and headache, and before I moved back as an assistant manager in airworthiness and avionics certification, uh, where in the end of 2004 I became the uh aircraft certification lead for unmanned aircraft. The office hadn't been stood up yet. Uh, early the next year, January of oh five, Nick Sabatini decided that uh he wanted to create the program office and, and asked me to lead it. And uh which I readily accepted. Uh and then I ran that until two thousand nine when I decided that about halfway through oh nine that I've had all the fun with the FAA that I can stand uh, I resigned after 25 years and did a short stint at Raytheon for about six months, and then I ended up here at New Mexico State University, where I'm the uh, director for Global UAS Strategic
0: Initiatives. That's uh, that's a very interesting uh, career that you've had, Doug. And like I said, I met you while you were working at the FAA, and uh, I know that you know we had a couple of <clears throat> heated discussions. <laughs> You were over there. Um, you know, I know that you're out on the outside. Do you, you have any uh, perspective you'd like to share about being like somebody who is a proponent for, uh, let's say, unmanned aircraft systems, airspace integration?
2: Well, I think the um, the thing I'd like to share, and, and it's probably not good news, uh, especially with uh, some of the content that you and I used to have good uh, emotional
1: um,
2: – <laughs> Is it, it does have a, an apparent feel, and it, that that the system is broke a, a little bit, and we'll talk about that more a little bit later on when we talk about what some of the international community's doing versus what what we're doing here in the U.S. and and how things are broken, and it's not necessarily the FAA's fault or anybody else's fault. It just is what it is, and and we need to to work through those kinds of things so that we can take advantage of new technologies like this without having to wait 20 years.
0: I, I agree and I think that'll be pretty interesting but first you know in the first segment here um, you know I wanted to kind of talk about uh, the New Mexico State University uh, physical science lab. Um, you know I got the, I was down there for NIE and uh, uh, what was that October of, of uh, 11 I think and I got the nickel tour and uh, I was pretty impressed Uh, you know, you guys have a beautiful facility, some nice aircraft and, uh, even lovelier airspace nestled behind the Oregon mountains there in, uh, New Mexico. Maybe you could uh, tell the listeners a little about your position and, uh, what you do there and, and what, uh, the NMSU PSL does.
2: Yeah, sure. Be happy to. So, uh, we'll start with what PSL does. Uh, the physical science lab was, uh, created in 1946 uh, to assist the Army over in what was uh, then called the White Sands Proving Ground uh-huh. uh, in, in the, uh, 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 let's just the examination of uh, the V-2 rocket technology after World War II. Um, we were asked by the Army to create a lab to help them do that. And uh, we began in '46, and, and some of the things that PSL has been doing since 1946 are, are, are rocket launches and rocket technology. So that's an important part of what we do. Um, the other part, uh, some of the other things, we are currently the government-owned, contractor-operated, as you know, Pat, uh, uh, contractor for NASA for the Columbia Scientific Balloon Facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have been for, I think, around 20 years. Uh, the the location for that facility is actually in Palestine, Texas. And uh, at that location, we have many facilities around the world that we operate on behalf of NASA, our customer. Uh, and we typically will have um, two to three campaigns per year where we're flying for 60 to 90 days at a time in either Antarctica uh, or off of Sweden and other lovely spots like that. We fly balloons up to uh um 130,000 feet where they stay aloft for about 30 days at times. We fly balloons that are the size of the uh the Houston Astrodome. Uh, they um, and we do that around the world. Uh like I said on behalf of NASA. And then coming down to Earth a little bit, uh, one of the things we do at uh, the Physical Science Lab are unmanned aircraft, and, and we've uh, had a program at PSL now for about 13 or 15 years. Uh, we have about, a, uh, as, as you saw, Pat, we have about a, a dozen airplanes or so, uh, ranging from the Aerostar A's and B's all the way down to the Aerion Scout, um, and uh, we fly on a routine basis um, and so, from that perspective, how I tie into it, my, my focus, by and large, since I've been at PSL, which is a little over three years now, uh, is is airspace integration, um, both domestically and internationally. Um, with my background, uh, I feel like I'm very well suited to get into the fray and and to try to push things along, and and that's what my goal at PSL is is to make progress in spite of the things that are in front of us. Um, we take whatever progress we can get, and we and we move forward with it. And that's, that's my goal at uh, PSL.
0: That's, that's pretty interesting. It's almost like an airspace integration cat herder.
2: <laughs> and it can be that. It absolutely can.
0: I know it's uh, sometimes you know you want to uh, well personally I speak for myself I want to throw my hands up, uh, but uh, you know I, I have to st- I have to hand it to you. you've been you've been uh, sticking with it. Now I did do a story when I did come and do the tour uh, I did a story for uh, SUS News. Uh, about the facility, and I took some pictures, and, and a great facility you guys have, um, and I would urge the listeners, you can uh, search for that at the susnews.com website. And there's some pictures and some commentary about uh, the facility. It's pretty nice. Uh, I will say that uh, Las Cruces is like uh, um, Shangri-La compared to Alamogordo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually at Alamogordo when I'm doing the NIE. Uh, not that Alamogordo is not a great town, but just uh, – we'll just leave it at that. Anyway, um, let's talk – you know, I you sent me over your PDF, the, the presentation from this year's TAC conference, which I've never made one of the conferences because I seem to always be there uh, at White Sands and, and leave two weeks before the conference. It's like, you know, you leave, don't want to come back. Uh, and one other note, that Launch Complex 33, which I'm sure you've been out there for the V2 launch site. Man, I was all over that one last time I was out there. It was a great thing. But let's talk about your presentation at the TAC conference uh, this year. Maybe you can discuss uh, for the audience uh, benefit, what is TAC?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. And, and I neglected to mention the Flight Test Center at New Mexico State PSL. I'll talk about that in a minute. Sure. Uh yeah. Yeah, TAC stands for the Technical Analysis and Application Center. It was created about uh, 12 or 13 years ago as a research facility within PSL. Um, it still exists. I'm the deputy director for TAC. I, the director is Steve Hotman, my boss. Uh, but but through that venue, we've been holding a conference every year, and it's this year, this past December, was our 13th conference, uh, 13th annual conference, um, and uh we are we are pleased that uh it is so well received. We are still getting on the neighborhood of four to five hundred uh, attendees and, and for a conference like ours where we really try to hit hard the integration issues, uh we're single track, so we're not we're not trying to get mass numbers. We're trying to really push the quality of, of what we're accomplishing there. Um we've got some great sponsorships like uh like Dyke Weatherington within the uh the DOD that really uh helps us to be able to attract some quality speakers as well um and then um uh, just before I get into my presentation the flight test center at uh at PSL when I was with the FAA I was getting uh a a lot of pressure to create company test ranges, and and that's still what the companies would like to have at the end of the day, but I don't believe they'll ever be able to get those. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was clear that uh, there needed to be a location where we could have some unmanned aircraft experimental testing going on outside of government ranges um, where a private company Joe's garage could go and fly his unmanned aircraft um in an environment that would be low risk. Um and and you can't pick a better spot uh in my opinion than southern New Mexico, in particular in that area, as as you can attest to, both you and Gene can attest to, there's about uh one person for every twenty square miles in that part of the country. Uh, Somebody since, what's that? Wow, somebody moved in, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and since the uh, the range is on the west side of White Sands in that restricted area, yeah, we we call it a shadow that that White Sands casts over our uh, the airspace that we use, um, and it allows us uh, to operate in an airspace that is typically uh, low traffic density as well as low population density. Uh, good flying year-round, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, the the presentation that I give, I felt very convicted that, you know, I think we still have a lot of misconceptions around there about who's doing what, who's really flying, who's really making money commercially, who's not around the world. Uh, and I tried to make the first step toward, uh, describing what that might look like in that presentation, which uh, which I sent to you, Pat. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I, I queried about 20 of my colleagues around the world. I got good responses from about seven or eight of them. The others are not off the hook yet. I'm still going to continue to build this. Uh, but found out some interesting data. Uh, how, how much of that, Pat, do you want to talk about?
0: Well, I do want to talk about that, and you know, I, I, one other thing I wanted to go back with on the test center thing, though, real quick, is is maybe you know you could uh, you talked about uh, you know where private companies could come out and uh, fly their aircraft, which I think is a great idea, because there's really no place to come out and test or do anything if you're not a DoD type contractor and at one of the military sites. Maybe you know, say uh, you could talk to a scenario like I'm um, uh, Joe Bag of Donuts and I want to bring my aircraft out there and test it. Uh you know what what are my benefits and and kind of what's required? Uh in clip notes. I mean, I don't I don't expect you to go into big detail, but kind of uh what it would take for me to come do that and what the benefit for me would be. Could you address that oh, real quick?
2: Yep, you bet. So, um today uh as as you all know in the US you have one of two ways that you can fly your unmanned aircraft you can either apply for and receive a certificate of authorization or waiver however you have to be uh, um, a public aircraft to be able to do that or you can get an experimental airworthiness certificate um... and and that uh, takes a little bit of time and typically it is uh... uh... it's it's not very nimble in fa- in in the way that you can make adjustments uh uh to your platform those kinds of things that are necessary for an experimental frame so um the the flight test center um in uh in southern new mexico at at, at uh, PSL which is run by Steve Hopman um allows uh developers us just say to uh approach uh the university um and, and we're a not for profit place, so it's not like we're trying to uh make gobs of money off of the business we don't own the airspace, so we don't charge to rent the airspace like um d o d ranges do mm-hmm. um, and because we do it in the in the nas we do it in civil airspace um so what, you, what you're paying for, in effect, is just for the expertise and then if it goes beyond my sight uh, for chase aircraft, those kinds of things. So they will approach PSL. They'll they'll uh, give us some information about the aircraft, technical qualifications, that kind of thing. We'll do a quick review of it and then decide uh, a time frame schedule, give, uh, give the customer a, a rough order of magnitude cost of what it will take to – to get the system through to uh, ability to be able to fly and do the testing, then we have to do a safety risk analysis of the platform, where it's going to fly, under what conditions it's going to fly, the maturity of the platform itself. And depending on the complexity of the system, it could take as as little as 30 days. To complete all this, it could take as much as a, a few months to get through, again, depending on the complexity. And we've had some shoulder launch aircraft go through we've also had some aircraft with you know 150 wingspan 150 foot wingspan come through with uh, with a lot of complexity and we can't talk much about the platforms because that's um you know proprietary information
1: right Um, right
2: the other the benefit for coming to us is that we do have a proprietary ability to be able to protect that kind of information from a manufacturer
0: Right. And now the takeaway from that is I know you guys have your uh, you know, safety risk management criteria. Um is that something that a vendor so you know, I could I could go to the FAA after, let's say I, I sold my um one of my aircraft to, you know, whatever X ex- Federal agency, uh, and then I would I would take that and say, well, I went to uh, I went through the rigors down there at the uh, New Mexico State University Physical Science Laboratory, and this is the paperwork from that. And I went through their prop- or program or, or program, and uh, this is the documentation I have. Is that uh, something that would benefit a manufacturer?
2: Yeah, I think it would. I, now, uh, I, uh, and I think that it would in the context, and you always got to keep this in the context of um, the the approval that you get to fly is always based on the conditions that you're doing it and the location you're doing it at.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So the approval that you get to fly over desert and cactuses with nobody in the air with you is a different risk manner than when you want to start to take a platform over populated areas in terminal airspace where the airplanes are moving in and out pretty frequently. That's a different risk structure. So the two don't correlate. However, you do get some credit, I would imagine, for saying, well, at least you've been through the process. You know what the process is. You know how to manage risk and how to measure risk. So now how do we move on from there? It's not like you're starting from zero.
0: Well, that's good. I think that's very enlightening because I've had people ask me, you know, they're like, well, what are the benefits of flying down there? Well, you know, you go through their process and uh, there's a vetting and things like that. But I think that this will, uh, that explanation will help to, um, let's say, bring that message out to the masses and people have a better understanding of that. Okay, well, you know, let's talk about the presentation, Um, you know, and and I want to be kind of delicate because I know you're out there uh, globally dealing with a lot of people. And, you know, it talks about uh, the presentation talks about who you asked as far as who's doing commercial operations. And there were uh, a bunch of countries here, and uh, it looks like uh, eight or nine countries got back to you about some of the commercial operations that they're doing. And I'm going to say from my own experience, I was over at um, UAS uh, 2011, and a lot of the Europeans, and I was in on a couple of uh, meetings there with some CAA people, and, uh, you know, it kind of came up, the DSA was uh, kind of saying, well, we're leading the way. And uh, since this is a family show, I can't say what these uh, CAA people were asking me uh, about, you know, what was going on over here. But I said, you know, I don't know, because there's. It there seems to me that there are other countries that are allowing for commercial operations. Would Would you like to speak to that?
2: Well, there's, there's no doubt. Uh, uh, other countries have figured out how to crack the nut. And, and I think, though, and we need to be very, very careful about this because uh, I, I'm not. I don't want to break my arm, patting myself on the back. But we started. We started down. Um, uh, the small UAS rulemaking process uh, almost immediately after issuing that dreaded uh, Federal Register notice, um, because we knew we had a problem. We knew we had to fix it. So, so a rule to get commercial operations for a small or some segment of UAS within the uh, the NAS has been ongoing for five or six years. And that's important to state because all of the guys that responded back to um the uh, the survey that i was pr- uh, proposing um only developed their commercial criteria within the last year or two and it, it was in my opinion based on what i found from them it was all because we were pushing in the us for a commercial rule to get issued now i i will tell you where we, we've kind of Falling off the wagon is that our Process is killing us here
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, I mean We we should have been able to have uh, A rule uh, Obviously In much less of a time as you know You were on the small UAS arc I asked You to be on that um, and, and you guys delivered that product uh, To me in March of '09. I think it was um, I, I have no clue where that is now Today and I, I hear that it's It's stuck in in orifices and stuff outside of the FAA, but it's indicative of the problem we have. Uh, We need to be able to move quicker and more nimbler on. And and fortunately for them, outside of the U.S., some of our European and and other Asia-Pacific allies have an ability to be able to do that going through an extensive rulemaking process like
0: we have. Right, right. Well, I'll ask you. You know, that was you did ask me to be on the small UAS arc. Uh, any regrets?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, of course not.
2: You always <laughs> add a little space and a little bit of avocado to whatever it is we're asking about.
0: That's right. uh, yeah, there was. A, I remember. I think the last, uh, the last face to face that we had, in that I, I think I said, you know, I got tired of hearing my own voice and went and sat down. And I think that I put uh, poor Bruce Tarbert through the ringer on that uh, on that whole process. But you know, I felt I had a lot to add on that, and uh, hopefully, you know, what what comes out of that work will be something that we can we can be use or be happy with. I hope but, so too. We need it. We yeah, we do. do. I really wish we could have uh, come up with something, uh, you know, for the say under four pound frangible yada yada. It's... Uh, we had a lot of different people in that room. People didn't really understand the technology, but that's a show for another time. I want to kind of stay on track with your presentation. Now, one other question I had with the presentation, because we we're kind of referencing this, and, and we are yet to have a web page for the podcast, and we need to do that. But sir, uh, anywhere that, uh, like a web address where people can see this presentation, Doug?
2: Well, uh, the way that we handle tech, uh Presentations, obviously, and, and this kind of gets into the business of running conferences, is sure. that we typically don't uh, offer uh, the presentations to people that uh, don't attend the conference for obvious reasons.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, uh, but but uh, having provided it to you, Patrick, uh, I don't have a problem if if you want to post it. It's in the public. I'll let I'll let uh, you do that if you desire.
0: Well, maybe I'll do that on the uh, SUS news webpage, and the only reason is I think it, you know we're we're speaking about it today, and it, and I think it would really give people kind of a, um, insight into what you're talking about, one, but also what what happens at Tech. And, and, you know, kind of backtracking a little bit to the TAC thing, um, you know, I haven't attended myself, uh, but the the roster of speakers are definitely uh, top tier and it's a very focused um, conference. And I you know, I, I know you kinda of talked about that that you were a one track and some, some people may not understand that, but uh your conference is definitely something where you have uh top tier people come in talking about kind of filtering and distilling down what they're talking about, a very relevant um conference. How many how many days is TAC?
2: It, it's only it's three days. The the two days are uh, open to any, anybody. The third day is a classified day that we hold off site over at Kirkland Air Force Base, um, and so it, it usually uh, it's a full week because we'll usually start Monday afternoon, Monday evening with a reception, uh, and, uh, and and because we are. Uh, not necessarily a government-sponsored conference. We can do a lot of things that uh, uh, some folks can't do. For instance, uh, this is our fourth or fifth year at the Tamaya Resort, which is uh, run by Hyatt. Um, It's about 15, 20 minutes north of Albuquerque. Uh, But you you drive there, but you, you park your car and you stay there for the three or four days. It's a wonderful resort, but the important thing is it's a captive audience so if you are in business and you're trying to network and create a network uh we we supply all three meals every day uh and uh it's an opportunity if you can't network here you got bigger problems um because, you know we have 4 or 500 rooms set aside um there are other conference rooms set aside, we have an, an extreme ability that I've never seen at any of the conference um because again, people can't go anywhere. You eat every meal together, you have drinks together in the bar afterwards it is it's just a, it's an environment like no others and and we hear repeatedly that if you only had one unmanned aircraft conference to go to in a year, you go to TAC. Um, and and having been a part of it for about eight or nine years, I I believe that. I I agree with that assessment.
0: Well, I will say, you know, for the benefit of the audience, you know, again, a lot of people that are probably, uh, you know, may not really know about your show, the smaller more focused shows are definitely like what you're talking about there uh being able to network and whatever else these types of shows these smaller shows are where you're going to get to sidebar with people that you probably wouldn't have access to uh in in the in the everyday environment these people are very busy here's an opportunity to to catch them pull them over talk to them candidly you know one-on-one um and that's kind of the thing I like about the smaller shows. I, I really got to make your show. I, I was gonna thinking about it this year, but uh, you know, after a couple of months in the desert, I'm ready to get out of the desert. <laughs> but I think I'm going to have to try and make that. And and uh, you know, I would suggest that other people make that show too. And it's always at the same time. When when is it? Could you put that out there for the uh, for the listeners, and then maybe the website?
2: Yeah, it is typically the uh, the first week in December um this this coming year let me pull it up real quick um it's it's going to be uh December 3rd through the 5th uh of this coming year um and uh the uh the website is just uh Slash um .psl/tac taac and i think it'll come up there
0: yeah, well, it's definitely uh, something sh- people should put on their calendar if uh, you you know you want to be in this business. That's for sure. I would suggest going. Now you can't go to the last day, right? The last day is the military, and you have to have a clearance and all the rest of that. Correct.
2: That's right. It's it's a classified day. <coughs> Excuse me, and um, it it really is uh, uh, a very informative day, as you can imagine, being part of things. Anytime that they can um uh talk about the classified things that are being done with this technology it is amazing to uh, to have that understanding
0: right now i um you know moving on from that i i i do need to catch that i need to i'd like to catch all three days since i have a clearance i could maybe get to how do you get to the third day you have to have more than a clearance do you have to be invited to the third day or
2: no, it's just like the first two. You you can sign up and register. The only thing different with the third day is that you have to be, uh, send in your clearance information.
0: Okay.
2: That's
0: all. all right. And well, secret
2: clearance is all that's needed.
0: All right. Well, you know, I'm going for the upgrade, but uh, <laughs> it sounds good to know. All right. Um, so, you know, back to the presentation, and you were saying, you know, some of the other countries, and I know you're doing some uh, you're, you're doing some work with uh, IKO too, correct? That's right. So yeah,
2: I uh I represent uh, uh New Mexico State University uh Physical Science Lab um we decided strategically that we needed to to as a part of this whole airspace integration that that we needed to uh be in a position to be able to influence what happens with uh, the air traffic management system that that currently globally is primarily being handled uh through an organization called the Civil Air Navigation Service Organization, or CANSO. And CANSO represents 85% of the world's air navigation service providers. So that's all your air traffic control facilities and organizations around the world, 85% of them. Um, And and, uh, that's important uh, because they have a permanent residence up at the ICAO headquarters in Montreal, and it's and it's important because they have a significant voice uh with that. So I um I am the CANSO representative to the ICAO UAS study group. Now the <laughs> UAS study group about four or five years ago, when it started I was the co chair along with uh, Holger Matisson who was in with Eurocontrol. and uh and both of us moved on and now the chairman uh, co-chairs, actually, are Jim Coyne from Australia and uh, Filippo Tomasello from uh, – he's actually Italian, but he represents the European Aviation Safety Agency in Cologne, Germany. Uh, in fact, uh, we're getting ready to go and uh, take our, uh, our sun guard with us up to Montreal here in about two weeks for a, a week-long meeting, uh, which should be lovely this time
0: of year. Bring your mucklucks, you know. <laughs> uh, now, the one other thing, I, you know, I wanted to talk about. So, you know, you were saying um, that these European countries are, at all uh, were looking at the work that we were doing here in the, uh, the U.S. And they were saying, oh, you know, we better kind of get cracking on this deal. And so, in, in my estimation, personally, I would say, okay, well, the Europeans are kind of leading the way now. With uh, the small stuff. And, and uh, they're working that. And so they were trying to play catch up. Would you think that kind of the, the worm has turned possibly where uh, the, the FAA, and this is just an opinion, is kind of looking at the work they're doing and saying, uh-oh, we got to kind of catch up with that? Or are they just mired down in the process? You know, it depends
2: on how you want to look at the market. If you, Once you post my briefing, Pat, if you turn to the last slide, which is the conclusion slide, and, mm-hmm. and again, these are my conclusions based on sure. the uh, the survey. But but you'll see in there, uh, the third board says a very important thing, and that is a risk-based approach for allowing small UAS access has proven success in Europe and elsewhere. So, and that's an important thing to point out, because uh I, what we don't need is a tendency to force something that weighs four pounds to go through a traditional airworthiness process it It needs to go through a risk based assessment, but I don't think it needs to have airworthiness as we know airworthiness for a triple seven or seven eight seven The other thing is the next bullet, and this is where I think it's very telling very little, if any, activity or demand for platforms above 25 kilos. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm,
1: mm
2: -hmm. I mean, that tells me that, yeah, I think they're very comfortable uh, outside the U.S. with going with small UAS platforms, and that could be 7 kilos and under. The U.K. has a very good rule called CAP 722, that they've been applying to this process for years, lots of great experience, but if you're under seven kilo, you know you could you can do some good commercial work over there right now, but even the the Brits will tell you there's no demand above that mhm okay. and, and and so it depends on how you want to say look i um my perspective is it'll be another year or two before we we see a commercial application rule come out in the U.S. At which point in time we'll see the market really kick it in the pants. But as far as the the stuff that really has more risk, the stuff above 25 kilos, we still are the only place that gets it done in the world.
0: Right. Well, Gene,
2: uh, beyond a couple, you know, like Israel, that kind of thing.
0: Well, I'd like to let Gene jump in here. Uh, Gene, you have anything you'd like to add, sir?
2: Yeah, I, I got
1: to concur with you, Doug. I think that seven kilo, fifteen to twenty pounds, uh most commercial operators that we've spoken to in the past don't see them you know, they don't see themselves exceeding that for a vast majority of the applications that they want. Even industrial applications for sniffers and, and mass spec and stuff like that. So that's why we've always been trying to push as hard as we could to get that smaller, lower weight class. Uh, Into in the spotlight, rather than going above the 55 pound limit or the you know 25 kilo limit. So you know it would be interesting to see the the, the push move toward that, but it really hasn't. It's kind of been stuck toward the the, the large end of the of the spectrum. Do, do you agree or disagree with that?
2: Well, I think I think that the issue is where the money is. True. Um. Sure. There you go. I think the money is is all pointed toward the bigger platforms, um, and and I think that that makes a lot of sense. But but the volume and the in terms of the numbers of unmanned aircraft that are going to be built, I still agree with the Teal report that that shows thousands and thousands of small UAS um, will probably be in the marketplace long before. You know, a commercial global hawk will be around uh, at any one time.
0: Yeah, I I have to agree with that. I mean, you know, even for the smaller operator, you know, when you get into heavier platforms, you get into more complexity, you get into redundant systems, and that starts to, let's say, the, the cost versus value starts to fall off. And uh, I really believe that even, uh, you know, as Gene was saying with his uh, weight limit, that probably 90 to 95 percent in the future will be under that. That's my personal thing. I also want to say that I kind of agree with uh, what you had to say, Doug, about the commercial rule. And I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I I have a feeling that this uh, that congressional mandate 2015 thing is probably, in my mind, realistic to see the small thing concur, disagree?
2: Yeah, well, I think the integration and the success of integration is going to be in the eye of the beholder.
0: Um,
2: If if those of us that are in the community, if we think that there's any hope of full UAS file-and-fly integration by 2015, right, that's not going to happen. This really is not going to happen by 2020, Either for that matter, um, and 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 technology is the problem. But but I I agree. I think as far as a 2015 congressional mandate or direction, a a by the way, a unfunded mandate uh, to the FAA. Um, yeah, I I think if we get a small rule done, not not just out for comment, but actually finalized rule. And and a couple other things that I think can be done, then then I think that that would be success by 2015.
0: I, I would concur with that. And then you know you kind of touched on the the congressional mandate and the unfunded, which is you know I mean to me it's it's a little ludicrous. But also you know the the proposed language that was put into the bill and and sent out there and the Congress put out those mandates. Did 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 you see that language and did you have any comments on that? Doug. Yeah, well, you know, I,
2: I I watched the language evolve over the past five years. Um because some of that stuff took took that long. It didn't make it after one FAA reauthorization after another. It just it just was ludicrous to watch the evolution of it. Um, and, and you can always tell when when people don't know what they're talking about, when they butcher the acronyms. Right. right. And, and uh, kind of uh, keep calling them unmanned aerial systems and all the things that happen. You know, you're in for trouble whenever the person writing that specific guidance really doesn't understand the technology that they're writing about. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, having been in D.C., worked in D.C. for a dozen years or so, uh, I don't get too excited about congressional direction and guidance. Um, and, and frankly, being a program manager in D.C. is probably the worst job in the world. Um, As you never know year to year what your budget's going to be. And, and mercy's sakes, if you've got congressional reports to do, you know, you're, you're tied up. It, it, it's like the job that never goes anywhere.
0: Um, yeah, it's funny. We could probably do a, a whole show, you know, uh, program manager from D.C. <laughs> <laughs> the trials and tribulations of that job—that must be a very daunting task—and um, I'm sure that it takes a, a somebody who's very adept at, you know, walking the line, being very political, um, and knowing how to 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 handle all types of people.
2: Yeah, well, and that's that's very true, and and you have to understand, your listeners need to understand that the FAA does not lobby Congress; is not allowed to lobby Congress. DoD can, with the way that. The U.S. Code's written. The FAA cannot.
0: Right. And and I'm sure, you know, I mean, uh, I, I try and say, you know, we want to work with the FAA and everything else. And I know that they, they have certain constraints that they have to uh, work through. And I don't think that a lot of people understand that that are in the effort. I mean, I, it, the conversation, let's say, uh, from the community is still one. Well, why don't they just do this? You know, well you know, I wish it was that easy. It's just not. I know it's not. And I've, you know, even the, to be fair, I've offered to, to um, have the, the new head of the uh, Unmanned Aircraft Systems Integration Office come on the podcast and, you know, maybe talk to the community. He's he's, he's declined, but, um, you know, maybe in the future. Uh, it would be nice if we could get more of a, a two-way street going, but I know they have uh, constraints that they're, they're working under. And I think that uh, our conversation today, you've pretty much uh, helped you know, bring some of those ideas to the forefront and people can understand them. I want to give Gene one more chance. We're down under a minute here, but Gene, did you have anything else you'd like to ask or add, sir?
1: No, 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 no. I think uh, I think Doug has pretty much covered all the bases that uh, we set out to talk about. I've been, uh, been listening with uh, uh, quite a lot of interest. I think that uh, Doug has a great background and been a great guest for us.
0: Absolutely. I concur with that. Doug, I want to thank you for uh, coming on and being a guest. I'm glad you came here. I think you brought a lot to the table as always, sir. You bring a lot to the table. Always have and I think you always will. Um, And if there's anything we can do in the future over at susnews.com to uh, help you with your work, sir, please let us know. And we're, we're happy to try and move the ball forward.
2: Uh, My pleasure, Pat and Gene. Thanks for having me, and I think um, maybe we can work on getting you a press pass at TAC next year.
0: Thank you, sir. I'd be interested in doing that. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Until next week, everyone, Uh, you know, um, have a good week.
1: Okay. See ya.